This series comes with a content note. Some of what you'll hear is distressing. Please check the show notes for phone numbers you can contact to receive confidential support. In this series, abuse perpetrated by an intimate partner is described as family violence, domestic abuse or domestic violence. We acknowledge that production took place on what always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. I started out with hope and then I started to lose my hope and it started to slip away. And then what I did was said to other people, will you hold that hope for me because I can't have that hope at the moment. For eight weeks now, you've heard the lived experiences of victim survivors and also from experts about the epidemic of domestic abuse. For me, this epidemic is deeply personal. My name is Theron Chavla. I'm a writer, broadcaster and anti-violence activist. I'm also the host of There's No Place Like Home. My sister Nikki was killed by her partner in 2015. Nikki, an ambitious, creative and kind young woman, was aged just 23. I never expected to lose a loved one to men's violence. That's not something any of us expects. Domestic abuse and family violence can feel like an isolating experience in so many ways. Abusers, in fact, use isolation as a tactic. For victims who speak out, survivors who try to leave, or family members, colleagues and friends who try to help, it can also be lonely. Help isn't always there when you ask for it. It can feel helpless, and sometimes it gets hard to stay hopeful. But we need to hold on to hope. Hope for a better way forward. Hope for a future where this country is safe for everyone. In this final episode of Series 2 of There's No Place Like Home, we turn our focus squarely to what we can do. To the hope and possibility that comes from putting into action what we've learned from victim survivors and experts. Often the first people to notice something isn't right is the loved ones, like family, friends, neighbours, workplaces. It's the people who are closest to them who can pick up on some of the, especially those subtle signs. Tanya Faha, the CEO of Safe and Equal, says the first thing you need to be able to do is recognise abuse. If you are worried about someone experiencing abuse, there's definitely things you can look out for. So some signs are is if the person is withdrawing from friends and family or social activities. And that's very often correlates with the abuser isolating the person from their friends, family and social activities. They might also be overly anxious to please their partner. You'll notice that their partner is often critical or jealous or they're walking on eggshells around them and they seem fearful or nervous when their partner is around. They might describe their partner as being jealous and possessive or moody with a terrible temper. The partner might be constantly calling or texting to monitor their movements. They might not have access to money for simple things like groceries or petrol or coffee. Or they might let on that their partner makes all the big decisions around the home and they're in control of seemingly everything. Parenting, finances, who to socialise with, where they go and how they spend their time. At the end of the day, it's really important we don't ignore our instincts If we think something is wrong, the possibility is strongly that something is wrong. It's important that we choose action over silence. The National Domestic and Family Violence Helpline 1800RESPECT 
explains that it is okay to say something if you're worried a loved one is experiencing abuse. But the way you have this conversation, that matters too. So how do you go about asking someone if they're okay? It's important to find an opportunity to speak with them alone, so to ensure that the safety... Have the conversation one-on-one and in person, if possible. And unless it's absolutely necessary, avoid having that discussion in the victim-survivor's home or via technology, in case their abuser is monitoring them. It can be really tough to start these conversations, but one of the ways to start is by asking them, are you safe at home or are you safe? Maybe even gently sharing some of the things you've noticed that's been happening. Try starting off small. In the first conversation, you might not even discuss domestic abuse. It could simply be a matter of asking whether they're happy in their relationship. You could start by saying, I haven't seen much of you lately. Is there something you're dealing with right now that I can support you with? Or something like, I noticed you were pretty quiet at the last family lunch. Are you doing okay? I'm always here to chat if you need any. Or even... I noticed a bit of tension between you and your partner at the party the other week. I just wanted to check, are you feeling safe? It's really important to be open, approach them with kindness, without judgement, and remind them violence is never their fault. Open-ended questions are more effective because they create fewer expectations and there's less pressure about what the answer should be. Also ask them what they need from you, because there's often a lot of practical help you can provide. Things like assisting with errands or childcare, getting copies of important documents and a bag with some spare clothes and items in case they need to leave home quickly, agreeing on a code word or a signal they can use if they need immediate help. And if they're not willing to disclose anything, Tanya reminds us not to push them. Sometimes people are not always ready to talk or acknowledge what is happening, so don't pressure them. This is really important. Don't pressure them if you can see that they're uncomfortable. And please do not tell them to just leave. Never try to force someone to do what you think is best. Remember that their perpetrator has already taken away their agency and it's our role to support them in restoring it. Telling them what to do only adds to their disempowerment. It's a well-known risk factor that the first three to six months after a survivor leaves can be the most dangerous. And in the majority of cases where domestic violence homicide occurs, the woman has either ended or recently left a relationship. So I think the best way you can show your support is by acknowledging their experiences, believing what they tell you and letting them know you're there for whatever they need. They might try and tell you what a great person their partner is. And it's important not to negate these feelings. Except that, at first, they might dismiss your observations. Remember, there are many reasons a person might not leave an abusive relationship. In many cases, they love their partner and they want to be with them, they just want the abuse to stop. They could be financially dependent on their partner or believe that they can't end the relationship because of family pressures and expectations or even visa conditions. They might be living in fear because their perpetrator has threatened to harm them, their children, or even their wider extended family if they leave. You can also let them know about specialist family violence services and offer to help them reach out. Obviously, there's all the hotlines and the resources that are available. And if you're unsure where to start, we host a website called Are You Safe at Home? 
You'll find the link to Safe and Equals Are You Safe at Home document and other resources for people experiencing abuse and those supporting them in the show notes. As Emily Maguire, the CEO of Respect Victoria says, as a friend or family member who's offering support, your main role is to hold space for the person that you care about. Being able to sit there imperfectly and recognise that it's okay to feel frustrated, it's okay to feel angry at your friends, uh, it's okay to have all the feelings that you're feeling, including about him and about her, but what's not okay is for her to feel like she needs to then manage your behaviour and your emotions as well. So you've got to sort of manage your own stuff and figure out a way to do that if you can be a support. It's long and it's hard work. So often... There will be a lightning bolt. There will be something that you will say at some stage and it might be in year seven and it might be in year one and sometimes something that you've said the first conversation, they'll come back two, three years later and go, that was the thing that made me go, right, I'm going to do this differently. The decision to leave any relationship can be difficult but to leave a controlling and abusive or a violent one, even more so. Sometimes it can take a person months, years or even decades to leave and often it can take several attempts. That is one of the biggest risk times that they are most likely to be killed. My sister Nikki was murdered when she tried to leave. And so if they're saying they can't leave and they're not safe to leave, you need to trust that and you need to listen to them. Countless other women, before and since Nikki, have met the exact same fate. It's about if they are at that significant risk, trying to figure out how to get support services involved. People living in an abusive relationship make countless decisions every single day to keep themselves, their loved ones, their pets and their wider communities safe from harm. And sometimes that means staying in the relationship. In such circumstances, remember to embed in everything that you say and do the recognition that it's always the perpetrator who chooses to be violent. They choose to abuse, to control. It's never the victim survivor's fault no matter their choices or their actions. Victim survivors commonly fear that they won't be believed. I think a common misconception about abusive men is that they're cruel all the time. Stacy, that's not her real name, reminds us that while perpetrators are violent towards their partners, they might be outgoing, friendly and fun when they're around others, which leaves the victim survivor at a loss about how to tell anyone what's really going on. My perpetrator, for example, could be quite funny. He would dress up for the kids' birthdays and help out with household chores. He also abused me. And it's important to recognise that all of these features can coexist. Domestic violence is really complex and so are the people that perpetrate it. Domestic abuse and family violence itself is incredibly complex. And so is the terminology. Respect Victoria's CEO, Emily Maguire explains that some people will refer to domestic and family violence as men's violence. I'm also one of those people. We often use terms like family violence or sexual violence or sexual assault because they are legal definitions, usually. They're definitions that then get used in public policy. And without a doubt, there's benefit to having legislation that speaks to the fact that anyone can use violence in a relationship. Anyone can perpetrate sexual assault. Anyone can be a victim of family violence or sexual violence. But I think commonly when we talk about men's violence, it's about wanting to put the perpetrator in focus, which is something that's often talked about in a response space and not really in prevention. When you talk about violence against women... 
you are talking about the victim always and who the perpetrator is is invisible. Talking about men's violence in particular and trying to make it clear that the vast majority of times, whether you're talking about men who are victims or women who are victims, the person using violence is a man. And that means that we need to focus on men. And that's kind of why that terminology is used and is helpful. Sometimes it's not about men's violence against women. Sometimes it's about other forms of family violence. It's really important to be clear about what you're talking about because we are wanting to be clearer about where both the problem lies and also where the solution lies. And when it comes to the experience of victim survivors, their experiences are vast and varied. And we need to understand that nuance in order to respond well. Stacey recognises that people who are vulnerable or from marginalised groups will face additional barriers to leaving an abusive relationship. I'm actually embarrassed when I reflect on how privileged my experience was going through the criminal justice system. I was a white cisgender woman who was employed full-time, had money for lawyers, and presented in a relatively calm and articulate way. I also had plenty of evidence never retaliated and was half the size of my perpetrator. So sure, it took me years to get final orders, but I'm sure those characteristics didn't work against me. Stacey's experience highlights the myth of the perfect victim. That's an unconscious bias that many of us hold. We do kind of portray this picture of this is what a perfect victim survivor looks like and she's compliant. That was Moo Bolch, chair of Our Watch and advisor to Combank's next chapter a program committed to ending financial abuse. We're not very good at coping with women who fight back, for example, or police turning up and misidentifying who the primary aggressor is. We're not good at thinking about victim survivors as anything other than perfect and compliant. And so that's why people have that fear of not being believed and that shame of not wanting to reach out because they feel that they're going to be judged. First Nations women people from culturally and racially marginalised backgrounds, LGBTQIA plus people, people with disabilities, neurodivergence, and anyone from a marginalised background or with layers of intersectionality and disadvantage are much more likely to face additional obstacles when they try to escape abuse. They're more likely to experience victim blaming and disbelief, perpetrator misidentification, homophobia, transphobia, racism or even prejudice from law enforcement and the criminal justice system. Ashley Donahue is the CEO of Mudjingal Aboriginal Women's Centre. She's also a survivor advocate and she knows, in her work and in her life, just how high these barriers are for First Nations women. Domestic violence doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. It doesn't matter how good your shoes are. It doesn't matter how or who you worship. It happens in every single town, state, country in this world. It's an epidemic. I always use the example of Rihanna, the singer, and Nigella, the chef. Her husband grabbed her by the throat in a cafe in broad daylight in England. So there is proof that domestic violence does not discriminate because they're two of the most wealthiest women and well-known women in the world. And yet it happened to both of them in a very public way. But what does discriminate and why it then seems to be a poor woman's issue is because the systems that fail, specifically with Aboriginal women, and that goes with the misidentification of who the actual perpetrator is. Friends, family and loved ones, like you, 
can make a big difference in supporting someone who's experiencing domestic abuse and family violence. There is so much power in just saying, I believe you and I'm sorry that happened to you and just acknowledge the harm. Sit in the discomfort of not knowing how to immediately solve it but validate that person's experience and acknowledge that what's happened to them because you might be the first person that does so. And I think the challenge is if you don't do that, you might be the last person that a victim survivor ever discloses to. So we know that the barriers to reporting, the barriers to both formal and informal reporting are huge. Workplaces and colleagues can play a key role too. Workplaces have a real responsibility. And in fact, one of the survivors who is on our expert advisory panel here has talked about the fact that it was the workplace that made all the difference for her. She would not have got the support or the changes she needed if it wasn't for her boss. Played such a critical role in her journey and her recovery. A 2022 study by Monash University's Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre found that 61% of victim survivors experienced an impact on their work and that a significant proportion of victim survivors were more likely to disclose to a work colleague or a peer than their line manager or someone in HR. At work, you might notice abrupt changes in someone's personality and a tendency to isolate themselves from co-workers. They may have new problems with concentrating, productivity, punctuality and absenteeism. Emily Maguire says... They may also receive more texts and phone calls from their partner than seems reasonable. If you are in a workplace as a HR person or as an employee in a workplace, recognise that you have got a job to do in your workplace and in your organisation and in your sphere of influence to prevent violence against women. As an employer, if you suspect that someone who works with you might be experiencing intimate partner violence, there are ways to respectfully raise your concerns. Firstly, Provide a safe and private place where you can have a confidential conversation. Then, ask open-ended questions that give them an opportunity to safely disclose if they want to. You could say, How are things going at home? You seem anxious lately. Are you doing okay? But don't pry. It's important to share observations using non-judgmental language and be prepared to slow down the conversation. Expect to maybe receive an emotional response, whether that's tears, defensiveness, denial, or even withdrawal. Avoid giving them advice and let them be in control of the conversation. Remember that an employee can choose not to talk to you about their personal life and they're absolutely entitled to that. Also remember that they're unlikely to tell you everything all at once. They might reveal a little to test your reaction to see whether you'll judge them or change your behaviour towards them. I think it can make so much difference because the workplace can be a safe environment because the survivor is leaving home, which is essentially the unsafe environment, to the workplace. And that's where the supports can be accessed and conversations had in a safe environment. Whatever you do, do not assume any facts before you've spoken to the employee. Don't pull the employee aside and ask them overly direct or insensitive questions like, are you in an abusive relationship? Or ask them if they're okay in a public place or in a team meeting. These practices are not only unhelpful, they contravene the Fair Work Ombudsman's guidelines on what is and isn't safe intervention. 
the workplace needs to do this in a way that is safe for the survivor and where the survivor feels confident to make any disclosures. If an employee does disclose that they're in an abusive or violent relationship, there are practical ways for your workplace to support them. Ask them what would be most helpful for their circumstances and offer them options. That could include things like screening their incoming calls, blocking emails from certain addresses, changing their work phone number, changing working hours or location, and supporting them to take leave or work flexibly. The role of the employer in these circumstances is to provide a safe space so that the abuse can't continue while the employee is at work. This is often called a workplace safety plan and it's likely to enhance the safety planning that they're already doing to manage the situation for themselves and people close to them. So don't try and explain it away. Don't try and understand it for them. Just acknowledge it and sit with them and then ask them, what can I do to help you? Because victim survivors are absolutely the best judge of what they need. They're the best judge at the level of risk that they face. Remember that if someone isn't safe or respected at home, then it's even more important that they feel heard, have their feelings validated and are believed in the workplace. And I can guarantee in the majority of cases, if they're disclosing to you, they've thought a thousand times about how they want that conversation to go. So just ask them. And then you're putting the power back to them and giving them the opportunity and the agency to control that conversation. Everyone's experience of abuse is different. And so are their needs if they choose to leave a relationship. What we often do is we bring this traumatised picture of what's going on and we don't also give the picture of what could be and that you could recover and you could come through this. And one person's recovery is another person's hope. Tali Starr, who you've met previously, uses her lived experiences to inspire hope in others. I don't come into this space to say everything's terrible, it's always going to be terrible. I come into this space saying it can be so hard and so difficult and the systems will work against you at times, yet you can achieve recovery, whatever that looks like for you. What's lacking in the space is the understanding that recovery actually inspires other people to feel like they can do it. It brings hope into this space. If you're concerned that you may be in an abusive relationship, know that there are people who want to help you by providing that support and that sense of hope. Think about who the people are that you trust. Think about the situations and places where it might be safest for you to speak to them, to ask for help, or practical support, or to simply seek validation of your feelings and fears. One of the things that I would usually say is check in with a friend, have a conversation with them, sense check what you're feeling against them and, you know, ask that question of, am I making excuses for someone? Am I making excuses for myself? We women carry so much guilt and so much shame that we don't know that. We didn't do that to ourselves. Any person that's been traumatised by violence or coercive control or whatever you want to call it. We didn't do that to ourselves, yet we carry that shame. So it's really changing the narrative. Stop victimising women and start holding men accountable. Hope, along with those closest to her, helped Tali navigate the path forward. I started out with hope. I started to rebuild. And then I started to lose my hope. 
and it started to slip away. And then what I did was said to other people, will you hold that hope for me? Stacy found solace and support from others, along with her own courage. I just take my hat off to her. That was Stacy's mother, Jane. We've changed her name too. After leaving her partner, Stacy took a managerial role at a multinational company. It was a demanding job, but with the help of her mother, she was able to do it while raising her children as a single mum. People said she was brave, and she absolutely was brave, and, and so dogged and determined. And I was terrified. I was terrified because the behaviours of her husband really escalated after they split up. Each night, Stacey would come home to her children. And in between receiving countless abusive messages from her ex, she'd cook her children dinner, bathe them, and read them a bedtime story. She'd then run herself a bath and cry. She vowed to keep going, though, and eventually she rebuilt her life. In terms of finding the courage, every time that I thought that I wasn't going to be able to make it, I would go out for a run and I would put on this Beyonce song called Freedom and it talks about someone yearning, begging for somebody to set them free, but the person realising that they have to break free of the chains themselves and there's this particular line that gets me every time. I'm going to keep running because a winner doesn't quit on themselves. And I mean, it must be such a sight to see, you know, a middle-aged woman sobbing but running triumphantly through the streets. <laughs> um, but it worked for me. When I think about what my sister Nikki endured and how her life was taken from her, when I think about the stereotyping and the victim-blaming that followed, that people thought to blame Nikki for her killer's actions, or the racism directed towards my family after her murder... When I think about all the years and all the life that Nikki won't get to live, I also think of the many, many, far too many people who've experienced abuse. People who've lost their sense of safety, their physical and mental health, their financial security, or their lives at the hands of a perpetrator. I think of Stacy, of Ash, of Tali, Bianca, Anya, Thomas, Jane, Eloise, Justine, and of the countless victim survivors who are now bravely working to make our country safer, alongside experts who've dedicated themselves to eradicating this scourge of violence. But today, most of all, I'm thinking of you and of how your choice to listen to There's No Place Like Home is a commitment to making change, a commitment to helping someone that you care about, a commitment that maybe just maybe could prevent the loss of life. And that gives me hope. Hope for a better future. There is, after all, no place like home. Thank you for trying to make sure that home is a safe place for all of us. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, who are committed to helping end financial abuse through ComBank Next Chapter. No matter who you bank with, if you're worried about your finances because of domestic and family violence, you can contact ComBank's Next Chapter team. Contact them on 1800 222 387 within Australia or visit combank.com.au slash next chapter. 
If you need help or advice, please check the show notes for phone numbers for confidential support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. It'll help these important stories to reach more people's ears. For more information about There's No Place Like Home or to join the movement, please head to futurewomen.com. This episode was produced by Jamila Rizvi, Emily Brooks, Mel Fulton, Sally Spicer, Hannah Fahur and Tarang Chavla. Editing by Bad Producer Productions, artwork by Patty Andrews.